From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID numbers are rising just as people let down their guards. We ask healthcare providers what patients they're seeing, what they're planning for, and how they're holding up. Then, where will the U.S. Space Command land? State leaders step up the fight for it to remain in Colorado. I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to persuade the Biden administration that they should just leave Space Command where it is. We don't have another minute to lose. Later, a story by a young, undocumented immigrant in Colorado who sees no future and no way to plan ahead. You have learned to think of yourself as an illegal, something that is shameful, something that does not belong. But a dramatic change turns things around. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. COVID-19 numbers are rising, just as many people have begun relaxing. Officials who track the numbers warn that a new wave is coming. They also expect hundreds more Coloradans to end up in the hospital this summer. John Daly is CPR's health reporter. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a pulmonary and critical care physician at National Jewish Health. And welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you for having us. John Daly, let's start with you for a sense of those numbers. I feel like everyone around me is either getting COVID or has been exposed to it. What's happening out there? Well, you know, it's not just you, Andrea. I, I'm hearing the same thing, and it's showing up in the numbers. Cases, the positivity rate, which is the rate of positive tests, wastewater surveillance. You know, we're seeing clear increases in all those key measures. I spoke to nurse midwife Betty Ann Hepler Uh, She's fully vaccinated and got boosted in February. She avoided catching COVID-19 for like two years. And then after a recent trip to Utah, Hepler got pretty sick with fever, body aches, a bad sore throat, ear pain, congestion, and she got a positive test. So I was very surprised. And I do feel like I let my guard down. She thinks she may have caught it riding in the car, unmasked with her hiking companion, who also tested positive. Though, as we know, you can't always tell where you get it. The numbers started increasing last month. Denver and other counties just raised the level of risk from low to medium or green to yellow. Two variants of Omicron are circulating. Tell us about them. Yeah, that's right. We have these two uh, Omicron sub-variants, BA2 and BA2.12, or sort of what they're known as the shorthand. Those are making up the majority of the cases. And, you know, uh, I recently talked with state epidemiologist Dr. Rachel Hurley, and she says uh, the trends are clear and many Coloradans are now catching COVID-19. Yeah, I do believe that we are starting to see an increase in cases associated with a new wave. And that Omicron subvariant I was talking about, BA212.1, 
is now growing in predominance and appears to be driving this emerging surge. A month ago, when the most recent data on the state's dashboard, it accounted for about one-fifth of infections in Colorado. Its cousin, BA2, accounted for the majority of cases, but that BA2.12 is even more transmissible than BA2. So that likely explains this changing landscape. And I should also note that BA2.12 is rapidly displacing BA2 in the United States. It's now accounting for an estimated 43% of infections nationwide. And the state modeling team says BA2.12 will soon account for more than half of the infections in Colorado. So trying to keep track of these different variants. <laughs> Dr. Kenlin Q, I understand you're at an annual medical meeting in San Francisco, and it's the first time it's been in person since 2019. What's that like? Uh, it is fantastic in many ways, Andrea. So one of the ways that we get together and push forward the thought and science in pulmonary and critical care medicine is to meet at these conferences. A lot of, you know, innovative thought happens when you get people together in unstructured ways and they can just kind of talk and relax and think about things together. And it also makes sure that everybody's on the cutting edge of medicine because it's with the amount of information that comes out, it's hard to keep up while you're actively trying to take care of you know, the patients in the hospital or in clinic. So when we get together for these conferences, we're really able to get together, think, generate medi- um, thoughts for where to push the science of medicine. Are people there worried uh, given the latest numbers? I think everybody is appropriately concerned. I think that we you know, you look around and you see a lot more people masked here based on the population of people who are here. And, um, you know, that's a sign of their concern. I don't think people here are necessarily concerned that we're going to be overwhelmed and not be able to staff our hospitals. Otherwise, none of them would be here because their institutions wouldn't have allowed it. But we are concerned that we're going to see this, you know, an uptick in cases with this. And I think that as each wave has come through, you know, we've been better prepared. You know, March and April 2020 was a tsunami, but a lot of these other waves have come through and, you know, been a little more gentle on us sans um, Omicron. So we talked about these new variants, Doctor. Can you compare the severity to the COVID virus of the past? That is always a moving target, and I will try because each time we have a new variant, subvariant that changes, you know, the nice thing that we do know is that the Omicron subvariants are similar enough to Omicron that we haven't had to... Um, you know, rethink everything, you know, for a little bit. And what we've come to see with Omicron is that it's extremely transmissible. Um, It is deadly if you're a susceptible person, but because of where it's occurred in time, it's occurred after many people have been vaccinated, many people have been infected with other variants. And so we haven't seen the, you know, the impact that we've seen with the subvariants 
that we have with the original Omicron when that hit in November, December, which was pretty devastating. And again, it might cause a lot of people to be less sick, but when you spread more, you infect more. And so even if, unless the rate becomes zero for death, you're going to see people sick and die in a hospital. Fortunately, you know, this is, this virus came along after we've had vaccinations. Otherwise, I don't know what we would have done if this was the original strain in 2020. And John, let's just get a refresher about what people are supposed to do if they test positive or what to do if they're exposed, since we're hearing about a lot of people who are getting the virus right now. Right. Uh, the best advice is to isolate for five days after a positive test or five days from when the symptoms start. If you're exposed, you can go out and about, but wear a mask for 10 days. This is according to guidance from the CDC a few months back. And the key is to limit your contact with others while you may be contagious. And John, tell us about treatments available that can help right now. Yeah, the state health department says if you test positive for COVID-19, you should seek therapeutic treatment immediately. And these treatments work best when they're administered as soon as possible. Uh, CDPHE, the state health department, has the latest information on therapeutics on its website, which is covid19.colorado.gov. And, and also, if you're positive, they advise you notify people that you're in close contact with, especially those who are at high risk of severe illness, and then they can take steps to protect themselves as well. Generally with COVID, if you've had the virus in recent weeks or months, you're unlikely to get it again. But John, that's not necessarily true with these subvariants, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, some new research suggests that there is greater immune escape now. That's the the new COVID term we're all going to be hearing about. Uh, so people with prior Omicron infection or vaccinations may be still susceptible to BA two twelve maybe even more so than the predecessor BA2. So increased immune escape uh, and or infectiousness may explain the rapid growth of BA212. Uh, and that's according to the state's modeling report. And the state does a lot of modeling data to predict where we're going and what we're going to see in the future. What's the word when it comes to the number of infections we'll see? Well, you know, last Wednesday, Wednesday, the state recorded more than 2,000 COVID-19 cases, and that was the highest number since mid-February when the Omicron wave was receding. The state modeling report projects cases could more than quadruple to that level, from that level, to above 8,000 a day in just a couple of weeks, so early June, and then start heading down. Uh, the report estimates that under the worst case scenario, testing demand will peak at like 50,000 daily test encounters. But the state says it has a capac the capacity to deal with that increased demand. What about hospitalizations? What can we expect there? You know, this is probably the most important part. The, the modeling report warned on Friday that the new wave is expected to land hundreds more Coloradans in the hospital, perhaps topping 500 or more hospitalizations, hospitalizations in the next month. And right now we've been just above 100. And in the worst case scenario, hospitalizations could reach 800, and that would represent a considerable surge, though it would still be half of the peak of January's Omicron wave, which was a big wave. Uh, the state says that all this may place some strain on healthcare systems, but not nearly 
to the degree that they experienced uh, during the prior surges. Uh, but we know frontline providers have been through two big waves in recent months. So to have another one coming again, uh, you know, that's that's tough. Dr. Ken Lin Q, any changes in what you're seeing in the hospital right now? Andrea, right now we've been fortunate and that the numbers in the hospitals have been quite low. So it's definitely given us a little bit of a break from the COVID side. We've seen a lot of other respiratory viruses landing people in the hospital. And from my selfish standpoint, not all of those patients are ending up in ICUs, which is you know always a good thing because when we talk about hospitalizations, the real element in the hospital that truly gets constrained is ICU bed capacity. So even the one they're ending up in the hospital, they're not ending up in the ICU, which then leads to us having pretty good, um, you know, a pretty good little break to help us re recharge a little before another potential wave comes through. Of the patients that do end up in the ICU with COVID, can you characterize who they are now, how old, and whether they're vaccinated? Yeah, in the last couple of months, what I've had come through the ICU tend to be patients who are still unvaccinated. But what we're seeing a little bit more of, and we, you know, we've seen this as time has come on, is patients who have immunosuppressive diseases or um, immunosuppression intentionally to treat their disease. So people who their antibodies just aren't there because either their new disease or something we've done to them to help them with their disease has gotten rid of their protective antibody responses, gotten rid of their protective um, T-cell responses, which are another part of the immune system that also helps protect us from um, COVID. And then with that being wiped away, they then get the virus they end up with severe disease and and not just severe disease, meaning, you know, the four liters of oxygen that gets them in the hospital, they truly end up very sick in the ICU. Uh, over the course of the pandemic, we've heard a lot about nurses and doctors and burnout after two plus years of dealing with this virus. What are your colleagues telling you? Everybody's burnt out um, and you can see you just see it and it's a natural thing. Right. You can only you can only be go through it over and over again so many times. And, and it's no different from, you know, if you look at our military, when, you know, we had a decade of war, the, you know, the soldiers were burnt out. They were unhealthy from repeated deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. You know, with our firefighters, you know, when they're fighting these massive wildfires, over and over and over again, and then don't even get a break in the winter months, you know, they're burnt out. And it's not a surprise that, you know, the members of the healthcare team, our doctors, our nurses, our respiratory therapists, our, you know, environmental services, people who, you know, have to turn over the rooms and make sure they're safe for the next person coming into them, you know, you know, and I can go on and on. They, you know, they're, they're tired, you know, they're really tired and, you know, a little break like this helps, but 
it's not just the physical tired. It's the emotional toll of seeing things. I think one of the things a lot of people, you know, forgot over the last few years is we use our ICUs for a lot of things other than, um, you know, the sickest of the sick respiratory patients. So when we have a normal ICU, you know, year, you know, in an average ICU, you know, somewhere between five and 15% of people will die um, from their disease in spite of all the technology we have. But you spread that out over the course of a year, it's not a lot of people. And we've had these waves where, you know, person after person after person, in spite of what we do, dies. And it's just very, um, a very emotional wear on our, on our, on all of our people. We hear a lot of people saying that at some point we can't just stop everything because of the virus, but there are still heavy restrictions about what someone should and shouldn't do when they're exposed or have the virus. John, that's going to put a lot of people out of circulation with these variants. How do you see this balance between living one's life and keeping the virus at bay? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we've heard over and over political leaders, public health officials, and uh, frontline providers say that we do have way more and better tools than we did at the start of the pandemic, but they say, you know, we have to use them. So that means, you know, getting more people vaccinated and boosted, uh, avoiding crowded indoor settings, uh, uh, increasing airflow and ventilation in those places, and properly wearing a well-fitting N95 mask, washing hands, you know, essentially doubling down on the things that are are known to work and and certainly you know getting vaccinated boosted wearing masks those are probably uh at the top of the list uh leanne jalan uh, is the head of the san juan basin public health department in durango i spoke to her recently and she says she and her team have changed things up at work we're doing things outside we're doing walking meetings fresh air meetings and then anytime we are meeting together we have gone back to masking I would absolutely mask if I were traveling. She says with some adjustments, you can protect yourself and still live your life. Thanks to you both for being here today. You bet. Thank you. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a pulmonary and critical care physician at National Jewish Health. John Daly is CPR's health reporter. We've been talking about the latest COVID numbers and how to interpret them and what doctors are seeing firsthand. The battle over where the headquarters of the U.S. Space Command will permanently land could be entering a new skirmish. As one federal review concludes, the decision to move it out of Colorado was, quote, lawful and reasonable. State leaders hope a second investigation will conclude something different. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce and CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim are here now to help us sort this out. And hi to you both. Good morning, Andrea. Before Hi, we, Andrea. Hey. Before we get into the reports looking at the decision to move Space Command from Colorado to Alabama, let's get some context. Dan, this is not the same thing as Space Force. Uh, yeah, correct. And it is a really common misconception. There is an important distinction between the two. So Space Force 
is the new military branch. It was the first new branch since the Air Force in 1947, established during the Trump administration. And it's a department within the Air Force the same way that the Marines are part of the Navy. Okay, but just because we have a new space-focused military branch, there are still space professionals in the other military branches. It's just the same way that there are not just pilots in the Air Force. You know, the Navy has pilots and stuff too, right? So all of those space folks from all of the branches need to communicate and they need to be on the same page as to what the U.S. mission is in the space domain. And so the um, kind of the clubhouse where all the top dogs coordinate that mission, that is Space Command. And Space Command, it's been temporarily headquartered at Peterson Air Force Base, which is now Peterson Space Force Base, since it was reestablished in 2019. And and Peterson and a couple other Colorado bases have been part of the shortlist at times for the permanent location. But gosh, the process for choosing a final spot has just been so messy and political and contentious. Last January, the Air Force announced that Huntsville, Alabama, not Colorado Springs, should be Space Command's permanent headquarters. Caitlin, that did not sit well with Colorado's congressional leaders. <laughs> no, no, it did not. Um, Republican Representative Doug Lamborn, who represents Colorado Springs, wrote that day to then-President-elect Joe Biden to say that the, quote, hastily made political decisions should not put national security at risk. Um, Colorado Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper also criticized the move, again, nodding back to reports that Trump wanted to move Space Command to Alabama for political and not national security reasons. Um, You know, the announcement, if you remember, came just days before Trump left office, and there was speculation that Alabama was chosen because of political pressure from Trump. And, you know, the former president only added fuel to that speculation when he stated during an interview last year that he, quote, single-handedly said, let's go to Alabama. So now all of Colorado's congressional delegation has been unified in questioning the decision and calling for a review. You know, they point to the potential effects on how this will impact the intelligence community who interacts with the Department of Defense and space operations and questioned if the time and money to locate Space Command or relocate Space Command, I should say, would be worth it, given it's already operating in Colorado. I should note Colorado is home to six military bases. Most of them are Air Force bases and, of course, the U.S. Air Force Academy. Uh, Yes, and I'm just going to interject for one second. I actually did speak to one guy who had sort of a military strategic thought on this. He thought that's exactly the reason why the Springs should not be home to Space Command. It already has the Air Force Academy, three bases, and... uh, Oh, we just... So we're losing... Caitlin here. Um, All right. Well, so there were two reviews. The first came uh, back early last week. The latest one was from the Office of Inspector General. Dan, what did it find? (laughs) Okay. Well, the DOD's report was clear in its assessment of the decision. And they said, uh, quote, we determined the 2020 basing action process was reasonable in identifying Huntsville, Alabama as the preferred location to host the U.S. Space Com HQ, end quote. That's what the DOD's report found. So according to the Defense Department's inspector general in that report, officials, they looked at 21 criteria, and then they found six finalists according to that criteria uh, as places to put the headquarters. And the report showed that based on those criteria, Huntsville topped the list, and fairly so. 
And it's unclear where Colorado Springs fell on the list. It was redacted. And much of the input from senior officials on how the final decision was made uh, was redacted, too. But it's also clear from the redacted report that the process for reaching the decision changed over the course of two days from January 10th, 2021 to January 12th. Is that right? Uh, right. Well, and, and this is what we have there is according to this digital magazine breaking defense. They first reported on the inspector general findings from the de- defense department here. Uh, Colorado Springs was actually low on the list of potential sites, but through, and this is an, another quote, the, the quote, military judgment of top officials, Colorado was moved back to the top of the list that was handed to President Trump on January 11th. And then the next day, Secretary of Air Force Barbara Barrett signed a memo selecting Huntsville. And that's where President Trump says that he intervened and says that he uh, says, let's go to Alabama. So the report found the ranking of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Uh, This is another quote, sorry. The ranking of Colorado Springs, Colorado as the preferred permanent location to host U.S. Spacecom HQ in the January 10th, 2021 decision matrix was not supportable, again, according to the criteria they had laid out. Hmm. So we have Caitlin back. And Caitlin, Colorado's political leaders pushed back on the report findings from the Office of Inspector General. It said it didn't capture the full picture of the process. How so? Right. So Senators Bennett and uh, John Hickenlooper, both Democrats, released a joint statement saying that basically um, the basing process for U.S. Space Command was untested, lacked transparency and neglected critical national security and cost considerations. And they what they actually think is that another inspector general report will show that. Here's uh, Senator Bennett. We know from the GAO report that the process was incredibly flawed untransparent and didn't consider the most important factors. So I think I'm very, you know, hopeful that we're going to be able to persuade the Biden administration that they should just leave this. They should leave Space Command where it is. We don't have another minute to lose. And I spoke with uh, Representative Lamborn about the DOD IG report. You know, his district includes Peterson. What that DOD IG report does show is that the Pentagon, the warfighters, wanted Colorado Springs, and they thought that that would be vital because it would reach full operational capability, FOC, faster than any other option. And if you talk to um, people from the Springs, you do hear a lot of people say, like the mayor, John Southers, that this DOD IG report also did show that Trump ignored senior military leaders' recommendations to keep Space Command in Colorado Springs. Now, a person familiar with the report says that the DODIG reports, you know, raises many questions, especially about how the data was used to select the site, how it was analyzed, and how officials conducted the process. You know, for example, um, this idea of full operational capability or FOC, you know, senior space leaders weighed it heavily, but the people making the basing decisions didn't mark it as heavily. So, you know, of this source that I saw, you said. Huntsville might have been ranked first, but there are real and legitimate questions about the analysis of the data and the ranking of the data. Um, So, you know, again, everyone that I've been talking to from Colorado uh, says that the DODIG report looked at the process to make sure that the laws were followed, but not necessarily the process itself. And there are real concerns about that process. Uh, Here's Senator Bennett again. I think you see that the process was so flawed that that it makes the rankings almost meaningless. 
And Caitlin, what about the second report, the one we're expecting from the Government Accountability Office? Right. So the GAO report, the IG report, um, also an inspector general report, was looking at the actual methodology, the actual process that the DOD used to decide uh, this basing decision. Now, the GAO's work is still ongoing. Um, It hasn't been made public yet, but some details have started to come out. After seeing a draft of the GAO IG report last month, Bennett, Hickenlooper, and Reps Lamborn and Jason Crow said in a statement that, quote, we are even more concerned about the questionable decision to move U.S. Space Command from Colorado to Alabama. Now, Colorado's um, congressional members concluded in their statement that, you know, this war that's going on in Ukraine, China's space expansion, um, it all underscores the need for U.S. Space Command to reach full operational capability as soon as possible. We cannot afford any operational disruptions or delays to that mission currently being conducted at Peterson Space Force Base, which is why Space Command must remain in Colorado. Um, I should point out again that a source familiar with the report said there's a lot of data Report more so than the DOEIG report, and many members of the Colorado congressional delegation believe it will support their contention that the DOD used a flawed process when it restarted the basing decision in 2020. Um, Representative Lamborn dismissed the DOD IG report as focused largely on providing a chronology of the basing decision and examining whether any nefarious or illegal actions took place. There was a lack of transparency, and there were some flaws in the process. So we should look at them both together when they come out. Dan, the military is usually pretty tight-lipped about commenting on internal matters. Have you been able to talk with anyone at Peterson or in Colorado Springs about what's happening? Right. I mean, my one-word answer to that would just be, ha, (laughs) because you're totally right. On the record, representatives of the military will do just about whatever they can do to protect the message that no matter what the decision is, the U.S. is going to be ready. We're ready. We're prepared, prepared in the space domain. And and that's important for them to do because space is increasingly critical by the day. And the Defense Department wouldn't want to be seen as, as scrambling on this issue. So, um, But when I speak to folks casually around town, I get the sense that, you know, it's like, yeah, a Space Command is already here and it is working. If we move it to Alabama, the military, they have to build out a more buildings and infrastructure and stuff like that. And that would be expensive. And it would take years longer to reach that full operational capability. But, you know, 100% it could be done. And then if they did that, the cost of living would be cheaper for the personnel there. And also Huntsville, it's it's not like it's a slouch in the space realm either. The Army's Redstone Arsenal, is, which is there, is home to the U.S. Missile Defense Agency, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, the Army Space and Missile Defense Command, you know, they're also a solid choice. Economically, though, Andrea, it's totally easy to see why Colorado's fighting so hard to keep the command here. An analysis from the Colorado Space Coalition and Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation estimates the 1,400 workers at Space Command indirectly contribute about one billion dollars to the Colorado economy. Wow. So where does this leave Colorado? What happens after the GAO report is released? And who makes the ultimate decision on whether Space Command will move or stay? Yeah. Ultimately, this all goes back to the Pentagon. And the Biden administration can then decide if they want the Department of Defense to make that basing decision, which is, you know, typically and historically what has been done with basing decisions from the Defense Department. 
or they could, you know, they could maybe have a third selection process, which I've heard is something that's under consideration. Or, you know, President Biden, he could make a unilateral decision on it, just like President Trump says that he did in choosing Huntsville. We'll just have to see what happens. Dan and Caitlin, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce and CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. When we come back, the story of a DACA recipient in his own words, from the deep despair to a breakthrough moment that brought him into the light. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the time before Roe v. Wade, Colorado was the first state in the country to legalize abortion. It was limited to cases of rape and incest. When I first started dealing with reproductive rights issues, it was extremely bipartisan. Obviously, that has changed. So what happened? The story behind our current debates over abortion access in Colorado is on the CPR News podcast, Colorado In-Depth, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Ten years ago this June, the U.S. government created a new program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. It gave children brought to the U.S. from other countries temporary protection from deportation, and it made them eligible for college and jobs. Leading up to the anniversary, we're sharing monologues written by DACA recipients. They're part of a podcast series from Boulder-based Modus Theater. Today, Redesel Salvidres Rodriguez's story. He's an undocumented college graduate. He's also legally deaf. Redesel's story begins with what his life was like before DACA. The monologue, I Was Made for the Light, is read by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristoff. Can you hear me? Come closer. Listen to my story. Imagine living in a lonely, cold world where you cannot see anything around you but dark shadows moving in the distance. There's no hope, no future, nothing to plan ahead. You have nightmares of being taken from your family and sent into exile. You have learned to think of yourself as an illegal, something that is shameful, something that does not belong. And you fear that you are the only one. The other students are talking, laughing, preparing for their lives, choosing colleges. But you are not invited. You don't have a social security number. You cannot apply. You seek guidance, help. You say, I'm a good student. I want to continue into college. I'll work hard. I've overcome the challenge of being deaf. And now I have a dream. But the guidance counselor interrupts to silence you. I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do. You are an illegal. You try to follow as your friends continue on to college, but with no option for financial aid, 
no scholarships available. You don't even have money for one semester. So you must drop out. You can't tell your friends you're undocumented. You lie and tell them you're not ready for college. You get off social media so you don't have to see their happy faces, their talk of classes and careers. Little by little, you slowly disappear until they forget about you. All your life you strive to be good, to stay out of trouble, to make your parents proud. You've resisted joining a gang, even though they promised you that loneliness would end if you would just join them. But now you have to buy a social security number on the black market to get a job. You are becoming what you fear. Your body is being poisoned from the lies you must tell people to survive and to protect yourself. It's starting to destroy you from the inside. There's no escape. You are illegal. No matter how hard you work, you are still illegal. A prisoner in the free world, you are still illegal. You feel the heavy weight of chains. Are you a criminal or a slave? For you, being undocumented is a curse. You hate being Mexican. You hate your parents. And most of all, you hate yourself. And every day that your dreams die, the chains get heavier and heavier. You can't feel yourself anymore. When you accidentally injure yourself at the construction site where you work, you're surprised to feel pain. It has been so long since you felt anything. At night, you pour alcohol into the wounds on your hands and watch yourself burn. You feel less lonely with your body on fire than numb in the cold. And then you decide you will kill yourself. But that thought cuts so deep. The pain you will cause your mother, your father. Some light at the bone of your existence says you cannot die. Maybe your life is over, but your siblings are American citizens. You will help them study, help them get a driver's license, help them get to college, everything you could not have. There is some light. You become one of the many undocumented laborers living to support the dreams of another. And then... Your mother calls. Obama has given you papers. Obama has created DACA. How can the words of a president you've never met, who's never met you, save your life? I sign up for DACA and college in the same week. I find beautiful people at the college, members of Dreamers United, 
I am no longer alone, but surrounded by other students who walk the same path. They show me their scars and the marks from their chains. I see the tears and motivation in their eyes. I see them graduating, becoming doctors, lawyers, educators, teachers, community organizers, and becoming my friends. I start fighting for institutional change, creating student organizations on campus, marching in the streets. I run for student government. And I, an undocumented, legally deaf, first-generation college student, I win. I look down at where the chains once were, and I see a torch in my hand. I am not an illegal. I am not. That was a lie. The lie that created all the lies that pulled me into darkness. I am not an illegal. My name, Redesel, has its ancestral root in Redesol, or King of the Sun. I was made for the light. And no human being is illegal on these stolen lands. Listen, you who are afraid, I know your fear. You who have no hope, who are so deep in hiding that you have lost even yourself, you can win the battle with the shadows. The nightmares can stop and go away. You are not alone. Your arms were not meant for chains, but for freedom, for joy, and to dream again. Your voices were not meant to be silent, but to stand up and fight back. On behalf of you, my community, my ancestors, my parents, my siblings, and myself. I stand in the full light and call out. My name is Redesel Salvidres Rodriguez. I am undocumented, unashamed, unafraid, and unapologetic. Welcome to my brilliant, shining, beautiful life. Nicholas Kristoff reading DACA recipient Redesel Salvidres Rodriguez's story. It's called I Was Made for the Light. The 10-year anniversary of DACA is June 15th. The monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. The readings are compiled in a podcast. We'll put a link at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. Redesel's story mentions thoughts of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, please call the Colorado Crisis Services Hotline. It's free and professional. That number is one 844 493 8255 or text 2-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4-
TALK to 38255. Each reading in the podcast is followed by music. For Ray DeSalle's story, here is the Young People's Chorus of New York City singing from Invisible Suite by Grammy-winning Afro-jazz musician and composer Arturo O'Farrell. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Cattle is king when it comes to Colorado's livestock industry, but the state is also home to a community of farmers raising alpacas. Each year, they gather at the Great Western Alpaca Show to compete with their best animals. It recently wrapped up at Denver's Stock Show Complex. CPR's Matt Bloom met some of the contestants. Cadence Rardin is standing at the edge of a large fenced-in arena, preparing to show off one of her family's tall, fuzzy alpacas. Competition's pretty tough from what I've seen, so I'm a little nervous. She holds the animal, which is the same height as her, on a leash, as she waits her turn to parade him in front of a judge like a Westminster Kennel Club contestant. What was this guy's name again? Aladar. Aladar. Do you think he stands a good, good chance today? I think he does. When she gets the thumbs up, Rardin walks Aladar into the ring behind four other handlers and their alpacas. A judge silently pokes and prods their frames, looking for any imperfections. After a brief pause, she hands a blue ribbon to Rardin, who smiles as she exits the ring. I feel pretty good about him. Really happy for him. Uh, Like the judge said, he's in complete package. He has everything that you want that's there for a male. Rardin is one of about 500 breeders who entered this year's competition. The judging rounds are split into divisions by age, gender, and fleece color, each lasting about 15 minutes. The show has been around since the early 90s, when alpaca breeding really took off in the U.S. It peaked out right about 2007. Sharon Lohner is a retired breeder who now volunteers as a scorekeeper at the event. Of course, that's when the housing market took a a dive, and it did affect the alpaca industry. She says over time, supply outran demand for their notoriously soft fleece. But today, the industry still has money in it. You know, it hasn't died out like we've seen with other specialty livestock. And by that, I'm talking about maybe the emus and the ostriches. You know, they they were going gangbusters there years ago, but now, you know, it's, it's not what it once was. But these guys are hanging in there. She explains a number of factors go into judging alpacas, from the quality of their teeth to the sturdiness of their frame. And they need to plant their feet very correctly. All four feet need to be firmly on the ground. You know, they can have weak ankles, which is a, which is a defect. 
Another factor is the softness and quality of their fleece. She tells me to feel a piece of Aladar, the winning alpaca's long gray fleece, to understand better. <gasps> it's so soft. The uniformity and density of the coat is what makes it this way, Loner says. So the judge was looking at the, the style and character from the tip to the skin. Got it. And how much fleece is on this body, which this guy has a lot. The show gives breeders a chance to gather as many prizes as possible and use them in their marketing. People with a decorated alpaca can earn thousands more for their fleece. Breeders also sell the sperm of the males who win. Later in the day, winners from individual rounds go head-to-head for a championship. Verdon, who's 15 years old, is the youngest of today's finalists. I have a few friends that are in the business, too, from their parents, but there's not a lot of younger people. She's been doing it her whole life, though. Her family has a farm of about 500 alpacas in Livermore, just north of Fort Collins. She hopes to take it over one day and grow the business. We need to get to the point where they're kind of like sheep, where they're used more for their fleece and where they're used worldwide for their fleece. Her grandma, Sharon Milligan, is also showing today, and she agrees. That's her goal. (laughs) And with her energy that she has, I'm pushing her that way, believe me. For the championship round, Rardin and Aladar go up against five other alpacas. The judge again goes animal to animal. She then grabs a big blue banner with gold tassels and hands it to the 15-year-old and her animal. Congratulations to both, both of you. It was a pleasure to judge this group. Rardin, very poised, shakes hands with the competitors before leaving the ring. She says she never gets tired of working with the alpacas. They're just so they're just so sweet and they're just so cute and it just kind of like I don't know it's just something that draws you to them and they're just amazing things to have. After Aladar is rewarded with a fresh bale of hay to chew on and rest until it's time to head back home. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. See photos of Cadence Rarden and her winning alpaca Aladar at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.